Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and more and more it's beginning to feel like it's all COVID all the time. And, well, we're going to try and get away from that as soon as we can. Until then, COVID information you can use. And to start this morning, we're going to talk about people's mental health issues with COVID. Particularly, imagine you're living in the nightmare of COVID, but you've also got the nightmare of obsessive compulsive disorder or anxiety disorder. We're going to be talking with Dr. Robert Milio in just a bit. He's an expert on OCD and anxiety disorder. Let's not get too anxious as we talk to the doctor. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. Wash your hands while you are listening to 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Dr. Robert Medlio. He's an expert in OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and anxiety disorder. And we're going to talk about how that fits with COVID-19. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, the disease is enough of a nightmare itself without getting into these other issues, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, you know, it's, it's it, like many things, it's kind of a spectrum, meaning there are, um, you know, many different variations of it and, and severity levels of it. But um, it's definitely challenging for people that have it. Now, and then we've got these daily briefings from various politicians from the White House thrown down talking, it's all going to get worse, more people are going to die, everything is awful. That can't be helpful, does it? No, you know, when you know you have a, an issue like OCD, um, essentially it, it's a neurological issue. That's what, you know, my, my focus in my area is really on, I've worked with uh, especially kids with um, things like ADHD, OCD, autism, and various neurobehavioral disorders, and they often go together. And there's a misconception that, you know, OCD is more of a psychological problem. Um, it really isn't. It's a neurological issue. And what we see is that the left side of the brain, there is basically like a switch on the left side of the brain that when there's a trigger, it gets set off. And uh, people will have obsessive thoughts or compulsive behavior or, and anxiety triggers that as well. And, you know, normally a certain degree of that is within normal. And, you know, uh, the right brain should then have a switch that turns those thoughts or those compulsive behaviors off. So, you know, when we look at a trigger right now, this COVID is the ultimate trigger, right? It's the ultimate uh, disorder or disease for especially for people that have um, the particular type of OCD that is obsessed with cleanliness and hygiene. Hello. Hello. You're yeah. talking about um, obsessive compulsive disorder and cleanliness. Is there more than one type of OCD? Um, yes, basically, you know, we, we look at four major categories. Um, one category, as I just said, talks about really cleanliness and uh, hygiene and the fear of getting sick. Another is more what we call 
symmetry where things need to be ordered around you. And then there's another, which is called checking, which means people that have to check if their hands are washed or check if they've turned off the light or check if they've turned off their stove. Um, and then there's hoarding. So, you know, when we see people that will hoard in their house or collect things, um, so those are the four major areas. And as I said, you know, especially the people that have the hygiene and some of the people that have the checking issues where they have to check if they've, if they've cleaned themselves, you know, they can really be triggered, um, you know, by anything, but especially this disease and especially where we have people on TV every day telling us, wash your hands, wash your hands, make sure you don't go near people or, you know, that's, like I said, the ultimate trigger. Well, I want to say wash your hands, but we shouldn't do that, should we, or should we? Well, you know, I think it's a good thing. I think that, you know, as a healthcare professional, that was something that was always very important, working with a lot of patients in a day, um, especially with a lot of kids, as I do. Uh, washing my hands was very, very important to make sure that I didn't get sick. So it is a good thing, and I think that, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, making people more aware of hygiene and people are learning more about health. I think that's one thing that might come out of this is that people will be more aware of their health and more concerned, especially about infectious diseases. Um, but, you know, for people that have OCD type behaviors, then it, it might be a trigger. Well, is part of the problem, though, we got too complacent about infectious diseases? Um, I think that um, in general, I think we, we got a little bit complacent about health, um, but I don't, I don't think that that's the main problem. I mean, I think that nobody saw this coming. You know, this is something that none of us could have prepared for. And, you know, we haven't seen anything like this since really the flu from 1918 over a hundred years ago. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that we got complacent about infectious diseases. I, I, I don't think anybody really saw this coming. So, um, you know, I don't think anybody's to blame for it per se. It's a virus that just uh, just came out, and I think you know, for the most part, we'll ha we're we're handling it in this country properly. Um, but I I do think it will, you know, as far as stockpiling things like ventilators and things like that, it will be important. You may, you described four different kinds of OCD. Are they unique and distinct, or can you have more than one kind mixed together? Well, you know, like all these diseases, all these different disorders, I don't really like to call them diseases, but like I said, you know, OCD often comes together with attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which is actually the most uh, prevalent mental disorder amongst the youth. Um, you know, we have a, a huge number of people in the United States that have that. Uh, it's approximately, you know, one in nine kids in the United States, and now it's becoming one of the uh, leading adult issues. Uh, most people with autism have some sort of obsessive compulsive behavior. Um, we have people that have Tourette's or tick disorders. So they all kind of come together uh, in various variations. And, and so they're, they're fairly common. And like I said, it really has to do with a neurological imbalance and it's a developmental issue and it has to do with what we call functional connectivity. There's nothing broken in the brain per se. There's just this imbalance. And, and most of these people that have it are actually, they have it because they're, they're actually very intelligent. They're highly 
uh, intelligent, especially with left brain skills. So the left brain is about, you know, looking at details and memorizing and science and math and verbal skills. And so, you know, people that are very intelligent, that do well in school, um, that are logical and linear, that are uh, attracted to computer technology and engineering, um, you know, people that naturally may be more organized and structured in their life. Um, these are people that are more prone to this, and they may struggle with attention problems or social issues. So, you know, it's really there's these networks on either side of the brain, and imbalances and developmental imbalances can uh, can lead to these symptoms. And so it's, it's not as clear-cut as we usually like to think about it. And what most people don't realize is, especially with my work, um, we're able to uh, often reduce or eliminate these symptoms um, moving forward. How do you do that, though? Medication? No, no, I don't use medication. Um, when you look at the brain and when you look at an imbalance, medication doesn't really address an imbalance. Medication may, may bias the system up or down, so it might dampen certain symptoms that you have, uh, but it doesn't really address the core issue. So what you need to do is really address the core issue, which, which is this imbalance. So what we need to do is actually uh, do different types of activities or exercises that stimulate the underdeveloped or underactive areas of the brain on the right side of the brain in these cases. And you do that through um, sometimes physical exercises combined with different types of sensory stimulation. Um, you can do it with um, different cognitive-based uh, activities as well. Um, so there's a number of different things, and it's really kind of unique in each person. But in general, it's about stimulating or activating the right side of the brain, like you would do if you had an injured muscle, or it's like basically rehabilitating that area of the brain and addressing that imbalance. And that can correct it and cause reconnection of disconnected networks in the brain. The ultimate cause of this is what we call a functional disconnection syndrome, and that's kind of my area of research. Does this tend to run in families? Um, yes, because it's really built on a trait. Um, there isn't a genetic mutation, which is a, what a lot of people think of. They think these are genetic mutations or physical damage to genes. Genes are involved because we know that they are, some of them are, are turned off when they're supposed to be turned on, and so they're not being expressed. But in general, what we find is that these are superimposed on a normal human trait that just is an excess version of it. So what we see is that, you know, many people in the family um, are highly intelligent and uh, may be engineers or have gone to very good universities or are university professors. Or, and, and so there is a trait where they may have this excessive left brain ability. Um, and each time we have a trait, and especially if you get two left brain parents and they come together, their child may have even a stronger version of that trait. And so if, if it keeps on going that way, the, straight can, the trait can get excessively strong. And if the other side of the brain is delayed for some reason, um, that can lead to this issue. So what we see is that you know, people that have these issues like OCD or ADHD or autism or dyslexia or bipolar, um, it runs in the family because ultimately they're superimposed on, on uh, genetic traits. 
but they're not really due to genetic mutation or defects per se. The reason I ask is we were talking, I sort of flashed back to elementary school and caveman days when I was in elementary school, and there was a kid in the class who could not sit still. Smart as anything, smart as anything, a student, but he was always jumping out of his chair, talking, and just generally carrying on. And the teacher's response was a line of a piece, a hunk of clothesline to tie him to his seat. Hmm. Yeah, well, there you, there you go describing exactly what I was just discussing. So neurologically, again, somebody that usually is a straight-A student and does very, small, does very well in school usually is a very left-brain dominant type of person. Um, and we all, you know, we all have some uh, dominance. It's like being right-hand or left-hand dominant. That's a normal trait, right? We wouldn't say it's bad to be left-handed or bad to be right-handed. And some people have a more excessive version. Some people can use both hands more easily than others. And that's the same thing really with our brain. We have um, a certain trait where we're, we see the world a little bit more through the left brain or the right brain. And each side of the brain has its advantages. Um, but when, you know, when you, we look at somebody that is extremely talented or gifted uh, or intelligent, what does that mean? What does that actually translate to? It translates to that there's an area of the brain where um, a specific skill or ability is uh, created and, and controlled, and that area of the brain is more connected. It's more strongly connected. So there's faster, stronger connections in that area. Uh, but when you have that on one side, the other area of the brain that is the, does the, uh, a, a, an opposite thing but is on the same area may be less connected because there's always this balance going on in the brain itself. So it translates into this neurological function. And you just described perfectly most kids with ADHD or OCD or Tourette's or even autism. They're highly intelligent but they're very hyperactive. They can't stop themselves from moving. And if you can't stop yourself from moving or you can't stop a thought or you can't stop a behavior it, or you can't stop a tick or a word coming out or a sound, you know, they're all basically the same thing. They're just slightly different versions of the same problem, this imbalance in the brain. How then do we help people with OCD in this, the age of COVID? Well, you know, what we see is that we need to uh, understand it as a neurological issue, that it's not just a psychological issue. Just talking to people um, is not really going to help. Medication may temporarily uh, dampen some of these issues, but it isn't, the, it isn't going to, again, usually provide long-term correction. Um, what we need to do is really address it and get to the root of the core problem, which is this neurological imbalance in the brain. So in my book, Disconnected Kids, um, you know, I describe for parents or for people um, exactly what's happening in the brain and what they can do about it. Um, and it starts with really assessing your child or yourself and basically saying, you know, do I have an imbalance and is there a right-sided imbalance or a left-sided imbalance? Because, you know, people can also have delays on the left side of the brain where their right brain, they might, they might have, you know, a real creativity trait. You know, artists, people that are songwriters, athletes, people that are very good visual spatially, but they may suffer with things like dyslexia or bipolar disorder, which is really where there's a delay on the left side of the brain. 
So it's about understanding what the core issue is. Uh, my book is a good is a good way. I have uh, created what we call brain balance centers, which are we have about a hundred centers across the country where we've worked with um, over thirty thousand kids and families and young adults. And um, I have a practice in New York City that I've been working with people for you know over thirty years now. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP Old Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Dr. Robert Melio. He's an expert in obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorder, and helping us see how it all fits in to the world of COVID. Um, we'll be right back after these messages. Doctor, stay with me. We'll be back okay. in just a bit. Play 94 WIP Conversation. Here on 94 WIP, my name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder expert, Dr. Robert Melio. And we're talking about these things in the world of COVID. Doctor, let's switch from OCD to anxiety. It's something very different, isn't it? Um, it, it is and it isn't, meaning that, um, uh, again, it's a neurological issue and it's an overactivity in a particular area of the brain. Also on the left side, what we see is anxiety is really more um, the fear of, of or anticipation of some sort of negative event in the future. Um, that's really more what we see. It's kind of the opposite of depression, uh, which is just really more sadness. So it's more, um, you know, something that we're predicting might happen in the future. So again, this is why COVID is something that may trigger anxiety and anxiety often triggers obsessive and compulsive disorders or hyperactivity um, or, or those types of negative feelings. But some anxiety, especially during COVID, but even without COVID, is natural, isn't it? Of course, yes. All of these things to some degree are natural, meaning they're, you know, we have these things there. They're called stereotypical behaviors because they have been around because of evolution for many years because they keep us alive. So yeah, you know, to have an obsessive thought or a compulsive behavior and be very sure and check on things and hoard, hoard food, let's say, for instance, um, and being worried about something negative happening. Absolutely. These are all normal things. But what happens is that we, in people that have a disorder, it gets turned on and they can't really turn it off. And it's really because the area of the brain that would turn off a thought or turn off a behavior and switch us to another behavior is really underdeveloped. And the and those other areas that make us feel that way are kind of overactive. So it's all normal to a certain extent. It's just an excess, it's an excessive version of it. Who tends to get anxiety disorders? Um. Well, you know, it, it's it, it, again, what we see is that with these type of issues like OCD and tics and ADHD, they, they tend to be more prevalent in males. Um, we see that ADHD in an adult male uh, typically becomes more anxiety disorder. Um, they don't usually get labeled as much as ADHD as anxiety, but, um, you know, you can get it in females as well a lot. And again, anxiety and depression get kind of mixed up a lot together. So uh, women are, are a little bit more prone to depression. Uh, men are a little bit more prone to anxiety. But because we tend to mix the two together, um, you know, it's, it's pretty equal. All right. Self-confession time here, doctor. Um, back when I was in college, 
I used to get these horrible panic attacks, anxiety, every final time or midterm time. It required mm. medication. Wasn't some of that natural or was it a, too much? Um, yeah, some of it is natural. Again, all of us get, get anxiety, especially, you know, if you're in a highly competitive environment like a, a good college or university. Um, but again, if we go back and look at, um, you know, if you had any signs of hyperactivity as a, as a younger kid, maybe, and, you know, what your normal traits are and if you were good in school or not. So we'd have to look at the whole, the whole, you know, everything around it. And it's not that there aren't psychological issues or uh, things that can trigger us that way. But, um, yeah, to a certain extent, it is natural. Um, the fact that you were able to manage it is great, and that's where medication is helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully it didn't go on to affect you later on in life. Not at all. Um, let me say, God bless Librium. That's what got me through. <laughs> Um, is that how we treat it today? Um, again, there are, there are various medications that are out there today that, um, are helpful. Um, but it's not the way I, it's not the way I address it. I tend to address it more through more natural issues and try to really address the core issue and really look at more addressing these neurological problems and, uh, doing it through diet and nutrition through these uh, cognitive and physical exercises and things of that nature. Um, that's more the way I deal with it. What do you mean diet and nutrition? How does that play into all of this? Well, diet and nutrition can play a, a major role as in anything because the brain regulates everything. So if the brain isn't working properly, what we see is that we can have problems with our digestive system and our gut. So this can lead to different food sensitivities like gluten or dairy issues, and that can trigger inflammation, and that can uh, make uh, many of these issues much more excessive um, and can you know, affect our behavior and our, our mental attitude as a whole. It can also affect our ability to absorb different vitamins and minerals, B vitamins, omega-3s, vitamin D, um, all of these are, are important. So uh, diet and nutrition can play a major role because dietary uh, or nu nutrition uh, deficiencies can trigger different, different factors in our brain and can make these problems much worse. So how do we treat that? Obviously with diet, but how else? Um, again, by addressing the core issue, which is the brain, um, and addressing the gut, so doing things like um, taking probiotics and doing things that will help to heal the gut, eliminating foods that might trigger inflammation. Um, sometimes people need to take digestive enzymes or uh, betaine hydrochloride or other things that can help them digest food. But ultimately, again, most of these things um, come down to the brain itself and our lifestyle. So having a healthy lifestyle and also making sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure our brain is balanced and that it is working properly, um, exercise, sleep, um, but doing things specifically that might address an imbalance is really, you know, my main focus. And like I said, you know, I, I do that in my practice and I have that, I go through that in my book, Disconnected Kids. Do you find though, when you tell people it's your brain, that they feel like something's wrong with them that's different? If you told them, well, 
it's a psychological issue? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, I think you know it's kind of surprising that people we don't know a lot about our brain. We don't really know a lot about how the brain works as far as individuals. Um, so I think when people understand that it's not really a psychological problem, you're not crazy or your brain's not broken, but there is an imbalance in there. And it's really because you're usually it's because you're very gifted in a particular area of the brain, um, like that boy that you described. So when they understand that, I think they, they feel better about it because they feel like it's a real thing. It's not this kind of mystery thing. It's a real physical problem that they can address and that can be changed. So I think it gives them more hope and control over the situation. I'd rather have something wrong with my brain than think something's wrong with me. Right, exactly, right. And it's, it's not a character flaw. You're not a weak person. It's not broken. And, you know, again, I think it's you'd rather have something like that than this, you know, mysterious virus that's out there that might, you know, kill us all um, and that we can't see and that we really feel like we can't control. With people with anxiety disorders, how do you help them with COVID? Um, again, you know, what, what I try to let people know is that, again, the brain is the main regulator of your immune system as well. So that when you look at something like a viral infection, um, you know, it's not, you can, some people can be fully exposed to it and they don't get it. Um, they're not sick and they don't react to it. And so what you realize is that it really comes down to our own health. It's not the virus itself. We're exposed to diseases or bacteria or viruses every day all over the place. <clears throat> Whether you get sick is really comes down to your own health and your own your body's own ability to resist uh, diseases. So what regulates that and what regulates that primarily is your brain, which regulates your immune system. And your immune system, again, has a balance act to it. It doesn't want to be overactive, which can lead to things like asthma, allergies, or what we call autoimmune disorders, where our immune system is hyperactive and attacking our own body. And those people rarely get sick or get infections ever. And then you have other people that they have a weak immune system, and they have trouble getting rid of infections or fighting off infections, and they're always sick. Um, people with a, a weak left brain are more prone to get chronic infections. People, people with weak right brains tend to have uh, more susceptibility to autoimmune disorders. So, again, it's about really understanding, you know, where our health comes from and giving people some control. So stimulating your brain, activating your brain, taking vitamins and supplements, um, exercising, practicing good hygiene, practicing distancing right now. These are things that give you control over the situation. And these are things that dampen anxiety. And when you dampen anxiety, you're going to dampen OCD symptoms as well. It occurs to me as we talk, you're really talking about developing a partnership between the doctor, the individual with the problem, and the people around that individual with the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be a partnership. When I'm working with kids, obviously, it's the whole family needs to be involved. If we're going to change someone's diet, the whole family has to change their diet. 
if we're going to get the child or the uh, adult to do exercises, you know, we want other people to do that around with them. So, yeah, it is a, it is a partnership between uh, everybody, really, in the family especially. Does insurance recognize this approach? Um, in, in some cases it might, but for the most part, we don't accept insurance when, uh, when we're working with people because it is a unique type of approach. It isn't the typical mainstream approach. Um, and insurance doesn't cover much this day, these days. Unless you're lucky enough to have very good insurance. Yeah, but even then, it's, it's, it's a, it, they're very limited um, in the, the, you know, especially any kind of new and innovative treatments. How do we prevent it? How do we prevent OCD? How do we prevent anxiety? Is it preventable? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, my third book I wrote was about how we can prevent many of these things because many of them really start um, not only in the womb, but even preconception. So they are, you know, related to, like I said, different traits and genes that are either turned off or turned on improperly, uh, mostly in the womb. And so there are things that we can do. The third book I wrote was really about autism, called Autism, the Scientific Truth, um, about preventing and treating um, autism spectrum disorders, which OCD is often associated with. So there are things that people can do, parents can do, or a young couple, if they're thinking about having children, there are ways of actually reducing the, the, the environmental risk factors. So most of these are triggered by environmental issues, by lifestyle. So modifying the lifestyle before someone gets pregnant or while, the, while they're pregnant, and this is both men and women, because both of them can have an influence on the expression of genes. So, yes, it can be prevented, I believe, in some ways. It's hard to, to document um, prevention, but we do know that there are environmental factors that increase the risk of having these issues, and so, therefore, there are things that, that people can do to lower the risk of, of having these issues. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP, All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll have more with Dr. Robert Melio in just a bit. Say, wash your hands and continue listening to 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. All right. Doctor, you've mentioned several times um, autism. And while it's not the same kind of tie that we've been talking about between the disease and COVID, um, autism is out there and we ought to talk about it. What is autism? Well, autism, again, is defined as a, a, an issue with um, problems with communication, um, and that can be some, a small population of people with autism have difficulty with verbal speech, but with more, it's uh, nonverbal communication, the ability to read other people and read social situations. Um, they often have um, uh, tics or some sort of repetitive behavior that is like OCD, um, they, um, you know, will have uh, problems with social interaction. So it's, it's really more of a, a problem with social development, social skills. Again, many people with autism are highly intelligent, and you have a certain percentage that have what we call a savant syndrome, where 
they're you know they have superhuman type of skills and what we know is that again the the left brain certain networks on the left side of the brain especially related to an area called the basal ganglia and the prefrontal cortex are highly developed in many people with autism and the same areas on the right side of the brain are highly underdeveloped so it's this developmental imbalance um, that typically affects the ability to have nonverbal communication and see the big picture and uh, it can affect the way they feel their body and it can affect many different things but um, you know it's very similar neurologically to OCD and ADHD and and Tourette's well when I was a kid what we knew about autism was that kid in the corner rocking back and forth, hitting his head against the wall and moaning. And it's very different now, what we know, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, what we know now is a, a lot more, even though I think I don't think a lot of people uh, in general know neurologically what's happening in autism. This happens to be a particular area of research in my lab especially. Um, so, yeah, you know, people just look at it as a behavior. It's one of the most mysterious uh, disorders and all of mental health and neuroscience and because it affects so many things because again understanding that the brain regulates everything so we know that you know for doctors and healthcare workers it's it's kind of overwhelming because there's so many different things going on with people with autism it's not just that they have problems with social behavior and cognitive but they also have dietary issues they have again uh, kind of a hyperactive immune system, so they often have immune issues. They have food sensitivities. They can have, you know, things like eczema. Um, they can have problems with, um, you know, many things in their body as far as vitamin and mineral deficiencies, chronic inflammation uh, that can affect their whole body and their brain. So there's a lot of things going on, and it's, again, because understanding how the brain works and how the brain regulates the whole body it doesn't just regulate mental health it regulates every aspect of our health so when you see a pretty severe imbalance which is what we're looking at in autism um, there's so much going on that it's kind of confusing but i think we're getting a better handle on it well also i was astounded when i read they think thomas jefferson was on the autism spectrum well, you know, I think that, as you're saying, you know, that kid, you go back in high school, obviously Thomas Jefferson was probably one of the most intelligent men who ever lived. Um, and so when you look at people that are highly intelligent in certain areas, right, um, I believe that today if you had people like, you know, Mozart or Isaac Newton, um, someone like maybe Thomas Jefferson, if you look at some of their history, that today they may have been labeled as autistic as a child. Nikola Tesla, you know, he was very obsessive compulsive and, you know, he had a lot of real quirky aspects to his personality. And even Albert Einstein, I believe that, you know, he didn't speak till he was four years old. And the way the diagnosis most commonly comes about is that most kids, if they're not speaking by three, um, they're labeled as autistic at that point or given a diagnosis of what's called PDD-NOS. And, um, you know, so if you look at someone like Albert Einstein, he probably would have fit that criteria. Or they didn't have anything to say. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's what some people say. But, you know, there are these developmental milestones, and they're there for a reason. Uh, most children should be speaking by one year of age. Most children should be walking at one year of age, and that does matter. So, you know, to say that it's, you know, some kids normally may not speak till they're four, you know, that's not normal. There's something going on there. And usually it's that there's a developmental imbalance where there are certain areas that are, you know, excessively strong. Um, but, you know, it's not that that can't be corrected or compensated for. Or when we look at people that truly are geniuses, um, you know, the nature of genius is that there, as I said before, there are areas of the brain that are hyper-connected. And that is what makes them incredibly intelligent or smart or talented in a particular area. But that may come with, with weaknesses as well. How then do we approach people with autism to help them live a better life? Um, again, for me, it's always about addressing the core issue. It's not just about compensating. It's not just about accepting it. It's about really trying to address the core issue. Now, you know, most people with autism will have some version of it for most of their life, but we can certainly improve it and dampen it. Um, and in many cases, we can, we can actually correct it. I mean, there are documented, many documented cases of uh, people being completely recovered from autism. So it doesn't happen the majority of the time, but it can happen to a certain degree. So with me, it's about, you know, again, educating people, and it's about addressing the core issue. And that's kind of the message that we want to put out there and that we put out there. And this is kind of, you know, the message that we also put together in, in our most recent book that my brother and I just wrote, which is called Einstein's Desk, which is about really a young boy who gets a label of autism. Um, and he goes and he sees um, a healthcare professional that is kind of built on, my practice, but also on many of the people around the world that I've taught. And, um, and his parents, you know, represent the many, many thousands of parents that I've worked with. Um, and he represents, you know, kind of a compilation of many kids that I've worked with. And um, they're able to help this kid to really unlock his true genius. And, um, and the book goes on from there. The titles of your books, Doctor, please. Um, Disconnected Kids is, uh, is the best-selling book I have. It's been translated into around uh, 10 or 11 different languages around the world. And then I have five total best-selling books that are uh, out there in that world. And then the most recent book is this book that I wrote with my brother, Dominic, called Einstein's Desk. And it's more of a, a historical fiction um, that looks at you know, people like Einstein and Nikola Tesla and other people throughout history. And really, it's a historical fiction, kind of like a Da Vinci Code for science. And, um, you know, my brother has also written other uh, novels as well. But uh, this was really great because he and I were able to come together and write this book together. Do you have a website? Yes. It's drrobertmalillo.com. Uh, that's M-E-L-I-L-L-O. Um, I also am very active on social media. So at Dr. Rob Melillo is my Instagram and also uh, Dr. Robert Melillo Facebook page. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Robert Melillo for joining us here this morning on Conversation 94 WIP. It's been enlightening and giving us some hints about 
these problems in general and maybe the interface between them and COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Robert Melillo. Thank you. My pleasure. And it's 94 WIP Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. As we ease on out of conversation and into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP Health Sports Radio, my name's Peter Solomon. And to begin our WIP Sunday, let me wish two people a happy birthday. While they're no longer here physically, they're here in our hearts. Miss Betty Davis and Mr. Spencer Tracy, extraordinary actors, extraordinary artists. It's their birthday today. Think of them and what they achieved. And when we come back, COVID, we've got a lot of people trapped at home, starting to get a little stir-crazy. What are we going to do to keep ourselves from jumping out a window? Well, we're going to talk about one alternative in just a bit when we come back here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. The WIP time, 7 o'clock. Tell it to play WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. What are we going to do to keep from going crazy with the COVID lockdown? Well, we're going to think about what my next guest, David Mizajewski. Did I kill your name, David? Close, Mizajewski. (laughs) Okay. What he's got to say as an alternative to cabin fever. Good morning, David. Good morning. All right. We've all got cabin fever, I think. Too much at home, too much all news all the time, either that or too much Oprah. I'm not sure which. Um, You've got something else to suggest, don't you? Sure, yeah. This week is National Wildlife Week. And this is a week that we at the National Wildlife Federation have been hosting for decades to really celebrate all the really cool wild animals and wild places all around this country. Now, normally... What we do during National Wildlife Week is really try to encourage people to get their families together, to go out into you know, nature and travel and do all of that kind of thing. Now, obviously, that's not really the best recommendation right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. So we've kind of shifted gears a little bit. We still want to celebrate wildlife. We still want to encourage people you know, to, to really think about all the amazing wild animals that need our help and that we can see and enjoy but we just want folks to do it maybe a little bit closer to home. So we, what we're doing is we've issued a fun challenge. It's called the My Wildlife Challenge. And if folks go to the National Wildlife Week website, it's nationalwildlifeweek.nwf.org, um, you can upload pictures of your favorite images of yourself and your family when you're out in nature. Now, again, we're not suggesting you go on a trip to take those pictures right now, but all of us probably have pictures of, you know, a cool bird that we, had, we saw or our kids on our last vacation when we went hiking or something like that. And it's just really kind of a positive, fun thing that we can focus on, um, you know, maybe to distract ourselves a little bit and really kind of remind ourselves how amazing and wonderful the, the natural world is. What is the National Wildlife Federation? The National Wildlife Federation is America's conservation organization. We've been around since 1936, and our mission really is to protect wildlife and wild places and make sure that wildlife can thrive in this rapidly changing future that, unfortunately, largely um, those changes are because of human activity. And so we do everything from working to fight uh, the extinction crisis that we're in right now and save species and their habitat. We also do a whole lot of work helping people get connected to nature. So some folks out there might have grown up reading Ranger Rick magazine. That's the National Wildlife Federation. And Ranger Rick is going strong. 
Um, and we also do a lot of programs with schools and with families. We've got lots of fun programs and campaigns like the Great American Campout and our Garden for Wildlife program, which is actually one thing that we're also promoting during National Wildlife Week, this idea that, again, nature is all around us, right? We don't have to travel and get, gather in big groups to experience it. Nature is literally right outside our door. And so, you know, again, if you want to participate in the My Wildlife Challenge and upload pictures of yourself out in your own yard, um, and I forgot to mention, too, that when you, when you take the challenge, you get entered to win a really cool outdoor prize pack that has stuff that you can use once we are under, you know, once we're out of the pandemic to, you know, again, go hiking or camping with your family. Um, and so, at any rate, get, getting back to the garden idea, if you, your own yard or garden space, it's probably teeming with all sorts of cool wildlife, things like songbirds and butterflies and bees. And these things count as wildlife. So one of the things we're encouraging everybody to do this week during National Wildlife Week is to you know, turn off the news, as you were saying, just take a deep breath, go out and get that fresh air, get a little bit of sunlight just by sitting in your own yard. Um, there's a ton of really cool things happening all around you if you just observe them. And this is a great thing to do with kids as well. And if you want to get a little bit more active, you can even do a little bit of gardening. Um, you know, you can, um, if you have plant seeds lying around from last year, or you can mail order them or even collect them from old seed heads that you still find out in your yard, great thing to do right now is plant some of them and watch them grow. That's a, in a way, it's an act of hope, but it's also kind of a, again, it could be a, an education opportunity if you're homeschooling your kids right now, sort of the life cycle of plants and, and, um, and then helping kids understand the connections between plants and animals. You know, plants are habitat for animals. So lots of really, really, you know, fun stuff that we can be doing without having to travel, without having to gather in groups. And again, all of this information is up on our website, which is nationalwildlifeweek.nwf, as in nationalwildlifefederation.org. And if you do go out, make sure you stay six feet away from any other human being you might encounter. Absolutely. This is so, so important. And I really want to emphasize this for everyone listening is that we have to take this seriously. There are people dying. So as you said, if you do have to go out and about and you should only be doing that by necessity, like to go to the grocery store, practice that six foot um, social distancing, physical distancing, and certainly make sure you wash your hands thoroughly at least 20 seconds. I'm sure everybody has heard that and seen the tutorials, but really critically important. It's how we're all going to help stop this pandemic together. Why do you do this, David? I mean, you can probably make more money and have a less complicated life doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably right. Um, you know, look, I, when I get asked the question of, you know, why do you work in wildlife conservation and why do you care? And, you know, my honest answer is that I was born this way. <laughs> Ever since I can remember as you know, a little kid, I was just very drawn to nature and animals, and I wanted to ultimately grow up into somebody that worked to protect them and to help spread the word about how important and wonderful they are. And, um, and I followed that, that, that path, and I've been with the National Wildlife Federation. It will be 20 years this year. And, yeah, I'm not uh, getting rich, and it's tough work. It's a lot of bad news, um, but it's, that doesn't mean it's not important. And, you know, every day I wake up knowing that I can make a little bit of a difference. And if I can help spread the word on how others can get involved, then, you know, then that makes me feel good. And you put yourself out there on morning television, on syndicated television, and you're an That's expert right, yeah. that people I, look to. You know, I'm a naturalist. And so a naturalist is just somebody that you know, studies the natural world, but also 
then can communicate about it to, you know, the, the average person in a way, you know, that interprets the science and, and, and hopefully inspires regular people to want to get involved protecting nature. And so that is what I do. And, you know, most naturalists are working at national parks or nature centers or, or zoos or, or places like that. I happen to do my work as a naturalist in the media. And so I, for the last, you know, 15 plus years, have been doing a lot of work on television. I've hosted series on Animal Planet and Natchea Wild. You mentioned I do all the morning talk shows and late night talk shows. You might have seen me on Conan O'Brien or the Wendy Williams show or Rachel Ray or Ellen or the Today Show. Um, you know, my, my, my whole goal here is to reach people. And obviously entertainment media, television, radio, um, you know, these things reach a lot of people. And it's a great vehicle to get our message out about the National Wildlife Federation and National Wildlife Week and how we can all get involved being a voice for wildlife. But do people really care? I mean, if this was a station that played music right now, I'd play that song, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Yeah, you know, people do care. Absolutely. I mean, we know, and this is not just me, you know, wishful thinking. This is from, uh, you know, scientific polling that uh, Americans actually really do care about wildlife and wild places. And in fact, in such, you know, awful, awfully divisive times that we find ourselves in right now, this is uh, an American value that crosses the, the, the political spectrum. Um, you know, people on all sides of the aisle really do care about wildlife and, and, and getting their family out into nature. And so, you know, it's a great opportunity for us at the National Wildlife Federation to be a unifier and focus on something that really is important to so many people. Now, yeah, it doesn't always rise to the top of the um, the, the list when we're facing things like global pandemic. But there is a way to connect the two. And that's really, again, what, what National Wildlife Week is all about this week. It's, it's about saying to people, we know you're stressed. We know you have cabin fever. You know your kids are probably driving you crazy. Here's something a little bit different to focus on. And again, lots of great opportunities to get distracted maybe, um, to get outside. And again, I really can't um, emphasize enough how, how good it will be for you if you just go outside again practicing social and physical distancing but you know a lot of us have pets even just going for a walk to take your dog out which is okay to do again as long as you maintain your distance from others can be an exercise of getting connected to nature it's spring migration season right now migratory songbirds are beginning to come into the region so what a great opportunity to you know look as you're out and about on your morning walk to see if you can spot a new bird or hear a new bird. Um, we've got a whole new series of nature apps also available from the National Wildlife Federation that will help you do that. We've got a bird app that you can actually play the song of the bird that you just heard and kind of sleuth out what species it is. So, you know, lots of different ways that, again, you can get yourself and your kids just get a little bit of that fresh air. It'll, it'll help with the, all of those feelings of cabin fever, um, you know, get a little bit of exercise. That's also really great for stress as well. And when you're doing it, you can be connecting to nature, which ultimately is really the goal of National Wildlife Week. Do we teach people, kids in particular, to be respectful of wildlife? Well, we sure do at the National Wildlife Federation. Um, you know, it's what we know is that kids today are spending so much less time outside uh, just kind of discovering and exploring the natural world than even my generation. You know, I grew up in the 80s and I spent, you know, all of my afternoons and weekends and summers just running around in the woods with my friends and climbing trees and catching frogs and all of that kind of thing. And today, 
most American kids, the majority of them, are spending up to eight full hours a day, every single day, indoors, sedentary, in front of electronic screens. Now, again, nothing wrong with entertainment and, and our amazing devices and, and all of that, but I think anybody would agree that that is out of balance. And so that is, is, is what we're, again, trying to promote people doing right now, especially now, is, is use nature as a way to combat what we call the indoor child phenomenon and, and, and get them a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of green time, if you will. In fact, we've got a whole program called Green Hour, this idea that everybody should get an hour of outdoor time a day. And, and we've got a whole host of really fun, easy things that you can do as a parent to, you know, games, activities, things like that. And you can get all of those, by the way, on the National Wildlife Week website. Um, we have also made all of our Ranger Rick magazines, the online editions, and all of the supplementary materials. So we've got parents' guides and educator guides and crafts and games and videos. All of that is also available for free. So, again, Ranger Rick magazine is all about celebrating wildlife and teaching kids about it and nature, and everybody can access all of that content for free right now. How do you pay the bills? Well, we're a, we're a nonprofit organization, so, you know, we, we're a membership group. So folks make their, their annual $20 donation, and that's really what fuels our work. And so uh, that's another thing that people can do right now, frankly, and, and there's a link to do this on the National Wildlife Week website. If you are feeling hopeless right now and you want to just make a, a simple act, that, you know, is an act of hope and will really do something good for, for nature on this planet, you can just become a member of the National Wildlife Federation. It's, it's really that simple. Other than this education for the community, are there other things you do? As, the, as an organization, yeah. I mean, again, we do a lot of, of sort of wildlife education and wildlife inspiration kinds of, of programs. So, um, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, again, with our, our, our kid-focused work, we've got the Ranger Rick magazines. We've got our Eco Schools program, which is all about helping schools kind of green their practices, everything from purchasing to the curriculum. Um, and this is an international program that we implement here in the U.S. as the National Wildlife Federation. Um, I mentioned our Green Hour program, our Great American Campout program, which is something that we do in the summers. We'll see where we are with COVID-19 this year to see if we're going to really be pushing uh, camping out because, again, that might put people into situations where they have to be close to others and that might not be a good thing. But at any rate, we do a lot of that work connecting kids and families to nature. Um, uh, we're the National Wildlife Federation. That's our middle name. So, again, a, a focus of our work is protecting wildlife, making sure we have good, strong wildlife policy to make sure that, again, we have protected areas and, and, and protections for species that are declining. We work on, on specific species. Right now, we are working with tribal partners to reintroduce American bison to their native habitat across the grasslands of America. Um, I, I've seen the first wild bison calf born on the Wind River Eastern Shoshone Reservation in Wyoming for the, the first one born in over 132 years. So that's, uh, you know, something that is just, I think, really amazing work that we're doing. Um, we're working to protect sea turtles in the Gulf of Mexico and red wolves in North Carolina and mountain lions in California and, you know, wildlife all over the entire country. That's really kind of what we're all about. Which is important because we've also seen newscasts, bears wandering through neighborhoods, checking out the trash cans. Yeah, and, you know, one of one of the, the big messages there is that, 
you know, we actually can coexist with many wildlife species, even in our cities and towns and neighborhoods. Again, that's what our Garden for Wildlife program is all about. I mean, things like, again, birds and butterflies and, and bees and pollinators and, you know, smaller animals can, you know, easily be our neighbors if we just give them a little bit of habitat. And that starts with what we plant. Now, the, the, the right along with that message, though, is that there are certain wildlife species that, you know, we, you know, we don't want to encourage. And so, yeah, nobody wants bears showing up in your yard, eating out of your trash can. So a lot of our messaging around that is that, you know, we can coexist with wildlife, but it's up to us to do it the right way. So in, in those cases, if you have wildlife eating out of your trash can, it's up to you to store your trash indoors before, you know, the, 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 the morning of trash pickup which makes it less likely that the wildlife will get into it. Get a raccoon-proof or, you know, if you live in bear country, a bear-proof trash can. Um, you know, if you've got critters getting into your attic, well, critter-proof your house. You know, make sure they don't have entry points into your house because we want to help wildlife and make sure they have a habitat. We just don't want them living in our home. So, um, so a lot of these kinds of wildlife conflicts can really be solved just by simple behavior changes on our part. You can't blame them. You can only blame yourself. Yeah, you know, in many ways, yeah. It's like, what did you think was going to happen when you put out this smorgasbord of, of, of you know, human food garbage that, that these animals can take advantage of? They're no fools. And, you know, same thing with bird feeders. Um, I, you know, bird feeding is a great activity. Um, you know, it's a great way to sort of attract birds to one spot every day so that you can kind of see and enjoy them. But you're never going to convince a, you know, a 300-pound black bear that that bird feeder is not there for him and that it's not a great way to get a whole bunch of calories without a lot of work. So if you have bears coming to your bird feeders, what you really need to do is take them down. And if you've planted a lot of native plants, the natural plants that kind of grow in nature, many of which are great ornamentals in the garden, you'll actually be feeding the birds with the seeds and the berries and the nuts and the fruit and the insects that those plants attract in a much more natural way than your feeder would. And that's not going to attract the bears right into your yard. Well, it's good to remind us that, like people, bears like fast food every so often. That's right, yeah. And, and, and you know, I mean, again, this message of, of connecting to nature right where you live is just so important, um, especially now, especially when we're under, you know, bans on, on traveling and, and congregating with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, we really do hope that folks will find a little bit of solace in the nature again, right around them. And whether that is in your own backyard or going down to the, you know, the corner park in your neighborhood, uh, again, when you're walking your dog or taking your daily walk, and obviously, again, maintaining six-foot distance from other people. I mean, these are great places where you can de-stress, get your mind off of the news, and, and get a little bit more connected to nature. And, and I promise you, there really are no downsides of doing that. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94WIP. My name is Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, David Mizjuski. He's with the Natural, National Wildlife Federation. And he's educating us about National Wildlife Week this week and things we can do with the kids at home if we're all trapped at home thanks to COVID-19. David, stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking about National Wildlife Federation Week. Enjoy wildlife while you're trapped home with the COVID virus lockdown. And we're talking with David Majewski, um, their environmental education extraordinaire person. 
What's the what's the most threatened piece of wildlife right now, David? The most threatened wildlife? Yes. yes. Well, there's lots of wildlife that are in real trouble, unfortunately. And, um, you know, this is kind of the bad news. We, we're facing an extinction crisis on this planet. Um, and, and it's really, it, it, it's getting pretty dire. I mean, on this planet, there are over a million species that are endangered with extinction. Here in the, in the U.S., one-third of our wildlife is actually at increased risk of extinction in the coming decades. There are um, you know, 12,000 species in need of conservation efforts that aren't getting it right now just in, in uh, North America. So, you know, it, the list goes on and on. Um, we just got a huge report a few months ago about the North American bird population. There's, there's uh, about 3 billion less birds in North America than there were just in, in the last 50 years. In 1970, there were 3 billion more birds in the population than there are today. The monarch butterfly used to be the most common butterfly you know, big orange and black butterfly, probably the first butterfly species that we learn as kids, is disappearing. And, um, you know, we just got the numbers for both the eastern and the western populations, and they're way, way down. Um, bees are disappearing. The, again, the list goes on and on. But that's what National Wildlife Week is all about. And, and we really do offer a message of hope at the National Wildlife Federation about this, because this can all be changed. It, a lot of it just comes down to choices that we human beings want to make. And so that is what a lot of our, our programs are designed to do, to help people let their voice be heard, um, let their elected officials know that, you know what, we want clean air and clean water and, and wildlife that we can go out and see and enjoy and, you know, go fishing and hunting and camping and, and have all of those, those places in nature that support wildlife and people too. Um, you can, if you don't want to go that route, you can participate in one of our many programs like National Wildlife Week, like our Garden for Wildlife program, like our Eco Schools USA program, just tons of different ways that you can get engaged in getting you and your family kind of, you know, educated about wildlife, but also celebrating it and supporting all the work that we're doing on the, in the conservation world to, again, make sure that we have a future that actually has wildlife in it. And I'd like to say, say, say thank you to David Majewski and the National Wildlife Federation for being here this morning on WIP Sunday. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And it's been my pleasure. And it's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back with one from the archives in just a little bit. The WIP Times.